Nancy Barry presents on Promoter 101. Hey, Dad, where the podcast come from? Aw, oh, Jimmy. Well, you see, when two consenting adults... Uh, why don't you ask your mother? It's time to sing the song. Happy birthday to you. The podcast turned to is double you. Podcast is in its terrible tools like me, Dad? That's right, Jimmy. Only way more badass. <gasps> so we are two years old now, and it's episode 105 of Promoter 101. I'm Dan Steinberg. Please give a big P101 welcome to W. Luke Pierce. An amazing two years, Dan. Congratulations to you, to everybody out there who's tuned in over the past two years. We have to give you enormous thanks for two people here whose attention span is normally shorter than this sentence. I'm so surprised we made it this far, and we appreciate you being part of this. Thanks for tuning in. Why don't we hop to it, Dan? We've got a humdinger of a show this week, complete with Live Nation Canada's president, Paul Hagenson, giving a glimpse of the business up north over the Canadian border. Plus, AEG Northwest Regional Marketing Director Andy Rowe talks about cutting his teeth in the business and how he went from managing the dam to overseeing marketing for bumper shoot. Plus, we've got a war story with author Larry Butler, focusing on Sticks and Tommy Shaw. And news of the week with Works Entertainment's Luke Pierce. Hey, hey, it's David Marcus from Ticketmaster. Get your tickets to hear me on Promoter 101. You can listen to Promoter 101 pretty much anywhere. We're everywhere, Dan. Spotify, you can find us on iTunes, iHeart, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Music, wherever you podcast, Promoter 101 is there. You can follow us on Twitter. Luke is W. Luke Pierce. I'm the Jew. The show is Promoters 101 or Promoter 101. We've got some live shows coming up, Dan. We've got some announcement coming here in a second, but... The one that we've already talked about, November 13th, this year's Billboard Live Music Conference, the Montage Hotel in Beverly Hills. You're going to be interviewing activist artist management's Bernie Cahill. What's going to be going on, man? Man, the guy's got the Lumineers. He manages Bobby Weir from the dead. He's all involved with Dead & Co. stuff, talking about the whole time with Zach Brown and what happened at Roar and the whole activist thing. It's going to be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. You can still register for that conference at Billboard Live Music summit.com. Make sure you check it out. going to be a great session. And we're thrilled to announce today on this podcast, episode 105 of Promoter 101, that on Wednesday, January 30th, we're going to be hitting the road again. The Promoter 101 podcast will make its first visit to my adopted home city, the city of brotherly love. That's right, Philadelphia. Get the whiz ready because here we come. 
Going to be at you coming out in January. Where are we going to be, Dan? We're going to be on campus at the University of the Arts. And that's at the Kaplan Recital Hall, 211 South Broad Street in Philly. We're going to be doing a live podcast, and it's featuring a very special guest from Live Nation, Jeff Gordon. We got the big dog with us. It's going to be a fun time in Philly. And you know, Dan, that's right around the time where it'll be playoff football happening. So maybe we'll get to see some Philadelphia Eagles fans tear down that city again. Hopefully we'll be right in the middle of it all. Admission to that show is free. We want to thank our friends at the University of the Arts for setting this up, being gracious hosts. Of course, looking forward to Live Nation's Jeff Gordon as well, too. Doors that show will open at 6.30 and the show will start right at 7 p.m. Make sure to RSVP to our event on Facebook. Hope to see you there. You don't need a ticket. You just need to show up and show up early because the room's not very big, but first one in gets the seat and that should be a really good time. We're looking forward to that. And I imagine there'll be some drinks afterwards. Maybe some cheesesteaks, Dan? What do you think? I'm in. Sold. Some more stuff happening here. For those of you just tuning in for the first time, Dan and I are huge fans of the Aaron Sorkin show, The West Wing, and we are thrilled to be bringing back the Promoter 101 annual Big Block of Cheese Day. That's right. If you don't know what that is, you need to go on Netflix right now and spend the next 144 hours watching all seven seasons of The West Wing, and when you understand it, then email your request, your questions, really anything you want to hear from Dan and I. You can have an audience with one or both of us pitch us your idea ask us for advice hit us up where can they reach us at dan submit your request by emailing to steiny at promoter101.net you honestly don't have to watch all of the west wing to participate in this but you should my first question back to anyone who asks me a question will be something about the west wing so there will be tests at the end of this dan and i really like the fact that we use the word audience with either of us there as if this was some sort of papal honor for us here no this is just dan and i answering some questions from some people that listen to this podcast really excited to hear what you all have to ask and the gist of the whole big block of cheese anyone that wanted time with the president the common people they could have that and well me and luke still see ourselves as just as dumb and common as anybody else. If there's something that you want to ask us, you want our advice, you just want to run something by us. Like this is the moment once a year we're like, you know what, fuck it. We give back and anything you want to ask us, we'll make time and you can like pick our brains. And if you want to pitch us something, you want to ask us about something, you just want to get our advice. If you want to figure out what color shirt you should be wearing with those pants, fashion is Luke's first calling. It really is. Golf swing advice, I suppose, as well, too. I could offer that up. Might have something to say about music. I don't know. And if you want to know something great about like 80s pro wrestling, that's probably where I best come in for you. If you have pro wrestling questions at all, ask Dan Steinberg. Well, pre-93, I, I would say. Anything current. Like, Is there anything beyond that, Dan? It's still on TV. I just don't know anything about it. Took Reese a couple of years ago to see it. It was like seeing indoor fireworks. Every time somebody came out, it was great. It's Adam Voith from Billions, and I'm on Promoter 101. If you've missed any of our Pat's podcasts, you can always catch up at Promoter101.net. This week, we feature a classic reissue of Episode 61. Episode 61, it was a great one indeed, Dan. It featured an interview with the head of Creative Artist Agency Nashville. John Huey sat down and shared some history and a look forward. We also had David Geller. Oh, and a war story from CID Entertainment's Dan Berkowitz. And man, if you haven't heard of Dan Berkowitz's story, roll up your sleeves, get a glass and sit down and be ready to be entertained by one of the true greats. How Dan is not making his living on stage 
But like by doing VIP is beyond me because if this whole VIP thing ever doesn't work out, which there's no way it won't. But if it ever didn't, he could definitely make a career as a storyteller for sure. Very huge congratulations to Dan today. Dan Berkowitz, that is. He just made billboards 40 under 40. Big shout out to him. Go listen to episode 61 of Promoter 101 in his honor and celebration of that. Don't forget to drop us a review and subscribe to Promoter 101. It's free and we badly need your approval so badly that... Well, we're begging for it here. Come on. So badly. Tell us how much you love us. Do it. Do it. This fall, coming to a conference near you. Two legends meet face to face. Activists Bernie Cahill, Emporium presents Dan Steinberg, Billboard Live. Bernie Cahill here. I'll be doing the keynote with Dan Steinberg at Billboard Live, Montage Beverly Hills, November 13th. News of the week. And it's time for some news of the week. The latest here, coming out of Nashville, what is becoming one of the biggest mysteries in Nashville and country music news is the exit of WME co-head and partner Rob Beckham from William Morris Endeavor last Friday. Billboard reporting that Beckham, who is one of the five co-heads of the Nashville office, has departed the agency under some very odd terms here. Not really clear as to why Rob is choosing to leave the agency, but obviously a big, big part of that company and his clients included Chris Young, part of the signing team for Dolly Parton and Garth Brooks. He's worked with Blake Shelton, Brad Paisley, Rascal Flatts, Reba McIntyre, Ben Perry, so many more. The co-heads of that office, Joey Lee, Jay Williams, Greg Oswald, and newly named co-head previously from CAA, Scott Clayton, will remain in place there. But the terms and the reasons for Beckham's exit still remain unknown. Rumors flurrying around about the reasons why for that. But yes, some big news and some shakeups in the agency world. And speaking of some mysteries, I'm going to take a second and talk about my favorite news piece of this week, which was out of Salt Lake City. Favorite news out of Salt Lake City said no one ever, but this one is a good one. The FBI, according to Dave Brooks at Amplify Magazine, is accusing the promoters behind the complex in Salt Lake City, which is a 2500 cap venue. FBI is accusing them of running more than $1 million of profits made from selling and distributing marijuana. That's right. On Monday, October 15th, local authorities released a 13-count indictment against Gabe Elstein and his wife, Angela Elstein, and Seth Gordon, claiming that the trio transported a ton of weed from California to Utah for distribution across the country and laundered the profits from that through a series of holdings companies and a production company called Bondad Productions, which promotes EDM shows and shows inside the complex, which is the 2500 cap venue on the west side of downtown Salt Lake City. Ironically enough, I've had shows play there the last couple of years. Those checks did clear, but very surprising nonetheless to see this come out of here. And these three were arraigned in federal court last week facing charges that included possession and to distribute controlled substance and money laundering. Basically, Allege here, the feds allege that $1.3 million that were spent to build the complex in the early 2010s came from drug money, beginning with the $400,000 they laundered and $900,000 in cash paid to various construction and development firms. It is a uh, 
pretty crazy story here and some great reporting by Dave Brooks. And I have to give a special shout out to Psycho Steve from Arizona who sent me this story originally to talk about here. And you should all check it out. Be sure to post a recap of the story that was posted in the local Seattle paper as well as Dave Brooks's great breakdown of it in yesterday's Amplify magazine. And finally, some news from Sir Richard himself. Sir Richard Branson, after receiving his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, announced his first ever Virgin Fest, which, in my opinion, they still have not workshopped that name enough, but it's going to be touted as a multi-experiential festival series centered around music, exploration, innovation, and generosity. And Sir Richard announcing a partnership with CEO of Virgin Produce, Jason Feltz, and the founder of the musical festival brand Kaboo, that's Brian Gordon from Madison Capital Holdings in Denver, Colorado, will also serve as co-managing directors of the Virgin Fest and just announced recently that Madison Entertainment, Roger LeBlanc and his team will be booking it. So congratulations to everybody involved. That'll do it for News of the Week. This is Mike Mills from Mills Entertainment, and you're listening to Promoter 101. It's everyone's favorite time of the week, the announcement of the Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. We're excited to announce this week's Promoter 101 Badass of the Week goes to the Paramount's Austin Theater, Litsa Brass. She just has an amazing vibe and that she sets the tone for her entire staff that carries through from the box office to the ushers all the way up to the entire stagehand crew, making her our Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. Congrats, Lisa. This one's long overdue. My name is Joey Scolari. I'm the head of industry relations for Live Nation Canada. I'm on Promoter 101. In our featured interview this week on episode 105 of Promoter 101, we have with us Live Nation Canada's president, Paul Hagginson, sitting down to give a glimpse of the business north of the border. Paul Hagginson, welcome to the podcast, man. Yeah, great to be here, man. We are in your town. We're in your country. Yeah, you're in the country. You got past the border. <laughs> right? You never know. This is okay, though. You got a little bag of weed. You'll be fine. <laughs> Just a small one. Yeah. And they tell you right at the border, you can have it. Just, we'd rather you buy it from us. Please don't bring it in. We want you to pay taxes on it. Department stores will be fine. October 17th. Let's talk about the differences between our worlds and yours. Right off the bat, the amphitheater business. It's like in America, almost every market has them now and they're just popping up everywhere. And you guys have a very similar economy and definitely a similar music scene to the States. Toronto has an amphitheater, but the rest of the country seems to have gone without them. And I'm surprised that since it's Live Nation, House of Blues World in both markets, that that never got developed here. I mean, Toronto could be one of the most beautiful amphitheaters in the portfolio. I mean, right on Which the lake. Which will always be Molson in my heart. My, you're going to have to let that go, right? <laughs> Bud stage, that's where you see all your buds now. <laughs> Is that the line? That's right. Hey, <laughs> there's so many good ones in there. So apart from that, Vancouver, for the longest time, I mean, you can look out the door and you can just see right here, you got condos and water and mountains right on the doorstep and you got land that is exorbitantly expensive. And so I think for the longest time, it's just, that's been one of the impediments. I mean, we do a pile of shows outdoors and incur the infrastructure of doing shows at Deer Lake Park or Malcolm Bowl or any of these other sort of jewel sites in this city. And I think just now we're sort of starting to get to that point where it's like, okay, if it's not, you know, right in the city, there's, you know, an opportunity that's sort of brewing right Right now that we're in the middle of that could bear some fruit in the city proper if we can grow that out. But if not that, then do we just look a little bit beyond the city walls here and look out into maybe one of the suburbs? But ideally, I think for fans and 
the experience. It's best if you have proximity, right? I mean, if you're in Nashville and you can just go down to the amphitheater right on the river, right there, right? Well, I mean, yeah, there's so many got great, something beautiful going on there. To, yeah, and I think that that's just, the bar is just getting set higher. So it's less about going and firing some amphitheater in there for just to call it an outdoor venue. It's like, are you actually creating a great experience for fans in the place that they want to see it, right? Where Nashville is an example of, it's like in an awesome location. The stadium tours have become bigger and bigger in the States. And that seems to have spread to Canada at the same time too. You guys are seeing that increased number of stadium volumes go up too. It's not that dive show shows aren't happening. Oh, 100%. I mean, our show count, I mean, we're doing more shows in more places, in more cities, in more venues than ever before, sort of servicing more of a spectrum of the artist career in all those places. But other than just having the one outdoor, you know, owned and operated venue in Toronto, the rest of the portfolio is bigger and better than ever. Like you say, I mean, last year was bumper crop of, I don't know, we did like 13 or 14 stadium shows in Canada last year. So that was a big number. It sort of come back to a little bit more average this year in the 789 department, but they're out there and they're big, man. I mean, the production values and the entertainment value, those and all time high. And I think all these venues are just getting better at servicing people. The stadium here used to be a pile of shit. Then they took the roof off. They spent $650 million renovating it. And now it's a great place to go see a show. It's a great place to go see soccer. If you create that great environment for people, they love it. It's a different way to see a show too. It just the, changes the vibe. hundred percent. And it's not, when you're in a room with whatever, Guns N' Roses or J&B and you got 45,000 people in the cold place tearing the roof off it, right? Giving people some magical experience. There's something about being in the mass. It's pretty How great. much of a headache is that when you're doing immigration for a tour that's got 56 shows. Is that weeks of like paperwork or is it click, copy, repeat? Or at some point does the department over there just start working with you because you're doing such a good thing for the economy? No, I think it's pretty fluid. We're doing so many and we're doing it so often that all parties are pretty on board with the process. I think it comes down to the artists and the act and knowing who's on their crew. And if you are a felon or you've got a random set of charges against you, please let us know. It's no judgment. We've all got lies. We've all got pasts, but we can't help you if you don't tell us. And then you get to the border and you're that guy who gets held up and the bus gets stopped or the truck gets stopped because you forgot to tell somebody that, you know, maybe shot a man in Memphis. No judgment, just we got to be able to file the paperwork correctly and maybe get the right attorneys involved if need be. Exactly. And I think too, if the worst case scenario there is, hey, buddy, you're going to take a rest here in Blaine or you're going to take a rest here in Emerson or wherever the border crossing is, you might have a day off. We're going to go do the show. You're not going to cross the border and we come back <laughs> and you get back on the bus. Making it work one way or another. You got to make it work one way or the other. As a corporation, how much are you guys just dealing with yourself as Canada and the other Canadian offices versus how much are you interacting with the U.S. offices? We interact with them all the time. I mean, we interact with the touring guys, you know, Omar, Ryan, Brad, Steve, all those guys all the time. I'd say probably 55% or so the shows come through touring and 45% of the arena shows we book ourselves, right? So it's a very... So a pretty even split right there. Yeah, it's a good, healthy, even split. And we still have to go hustle, right? We can't rely on everything's going to make its way up here, right? I mean, the key is to create opportunities and create more shows for more fans. There's an insatiable appetite for it, right? I mean, you see it, we all see it, right? People want to go see live music. They want to go see it in the best environment possible. They want to go see it where somebody's making a great show for a person where they kind of get all the variables in their favorite band together. So if we go create those in as many places as possible, fans will go. 
our job is to set the stage in as many possible ways to give people great shows. You can't sit there and always think that you can control the market and say like, well, I'm only going to give them one show a month or what in whatever town you like, hey man, maybe five's too many or six is too many or whatever. So then it's like, we need to be doing more. I, I really believe that because I really believe that people have broader tastes. They want to spend money on experiences. They want to spend money outside of their living room and outside of their computer. So our job is to go give it to them. Do you think that is a change with the internet, with the Spotify and the Pandora, where people can discover music in a different way than the radio where we used to tell them what the new single was and what the new act is, that people have broader taste because they have the ability to go find it themselves? Totally believe that. Whether it's in your own house or whether you stare at a whole bunch of corporate data, both stories are the same, right? The anecdotal experience of your own house is that there's more music being played. There's bands you don't know. You and I just talked about this before. It was like, did I know Marcus King before my Spotify put it on in my house or my car? No, right? But it did. And then I was like, this is awesome. What is this? Like literally probably driving and texting at the same time as I was looking, going, what is this? You know, take that one step further. You're like, this guy's probably great live, right? Or you're going to go look at it. I mean, it's the same data you see. We all see corporately indicates that, but then there's still all the anecdotal evidence of you hanging out with your friends at your own house party that tells you where they got their music. And it's fantastic. That moment of this band, who is that? Oh yeah, they're great. Right. And it can be your friend or it can now be your phone. In so many cases, you listen to the one song, you then it makes you go listen to the second and you're all of a sudden you're in and you're hooked and you're going to spend 2750 on a ticket to go see that guy. <laughs> 2750 ticket the first time in. The industry has changed since we started. It's 2018, man. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about where you started and how you got to where you're at because a lot of people, you know, aspire to move up through the ranks and have that opportunity, but not everybody can. So what was your path? How did that work out? So I started in marketing. Hey, some time ago, I heard you talking to uh, O'Connell and he was putting up banners. Oh, BOC? Yeah. I was handing out flyers. You know, there's a history with a whole bunch of people that you would know. Mark Norman, Jason Miller, all these guys. I would have handed out flyers to probably Jason's Jamiroquai show or something mm. like that. But you start marketing. I just, you believe in the music. You find yourself in a network. You find yourself in the game. You're completely caught up in it. And I think all of a sudden then I started to understand the financial part of it and promoting a band is being in marketing and understanding how to make something bigger and you're talking to managers and you're really trying to get the word out. That's sort of what I came out of. And then all of a sudden there's a leap into becoming a promoter and you're kind of given the keys to go buy bands. I didn't grow up as a club booker, as an example. So true story. I transitioned from Kevin Donnelly leaves. Back then, Don Simpson was running House of Blues in Canada. Riley was here and they uh, we had three Eagles shows. Riley O'Connor? Riley O'Connor. And so uh, I said, well, listen, why don't you, you know, here, go to these Eagles shows. Literally, I'd been in marketing. Don't think I'd settled a show. <laughs> Walk into the production office and Marty Homs there. He says, all right, listen, you know, I mean, hey, listen, we've all settled up thousands of shows. And right. So we're just going to have to let's like nick off all these things or, you know, these seats past the 270 are going to be settled at X or Y. And uh, I literally remember looking at him thinking like, I mean, you might have settled a thousand shows. <laughs> I'm less than one right now. <laughs> so, so then you just find yourself in the game and you understand and you try to piece it all together. And I think like anybody else, I've just been in the slipstream of great people who have been kind to me and given me opportunities and Canadian passport. There's been a lot of great people up here, right? Like the Rileys and you have to look as far as our big man in the big chair, right? I mean, Rapino. 
Michael's been incredibly great and they're amazing leaders and they're promoters and they're creative and they're drivers. And so I think to have even been in an ecosystem to have watched the likes of those, you go back one other generation. I mean, I didn't touch the Michael Coles of the world or those types, but Darth Vogels and the Jerry's and these guys, like it all osmosis is into you, right? When you hear all these people talk and their strategies and the way they're thinking through problems and the way they're thinking through deals and the way they're thinking through it all, you just can't help but soak it in and try to apply it in the best way possible. You're learning from the best. And the network's been pretty big in Canada that way. And now, you know, you see the likes of Omar and, you know, other Canadians who are making their own statements in, in America. You guys definitely show up across the radar in the industry on a big level internationally. I mean, I think it's, again, just trying to apply yourself and use all the things that you've learned for any of them. So how did you wind up going from the marketing side to so on I, the other side? Because there's like... You start to piece it together. I had to like piece together production. I didn't know anything about that. I You, you start to piece together all the elements of the business. And then, you know, you keep on going up and you start to investigate and learn into what are the other applications here to try to run the business. All of a sudden you wake up one day and there's a whole bunch of components to the business that are under your purview and you're no longer booking it at, you know, one show at a time, but you have a portfolio of 1,400 shows and you're selling the number of tickets that you are across the country and you just have to learn how to make sense of that. You know, whether that's the ticketing side, whether that's all the components that go into running a business like anything else. Like I say, I would say I learned from people who taught me well. And that's the one thing I think maybe we don't talk about nearly as much, and I don't think we've addressed much on the podcast, is the one possible greatest advantage of some of the bigger corporations is that the resources that are available is there's nothing that you're doing that somebody hasn't had to cross that bridge before. And you can usually find a resource where somebody can tell you, this is the blueprint on how we did that. And you can usually get five or six people to show you how they did that if you're looking for a couple different options. But that's some of the better resources that the industry has, but particularly a big company like yours has a lot of people that have sat in the same chairs before that you can knock on some doors. Yeah, I also think that because we live in a creative environment, the people who are attracted to being a promoter, the people who are attracted to being in this field, we don't work in a corporate environment. You can use the word corporation, but we don't work in a corporate environment that says that we're all a bunch of robots and that this is the methodology and you have to do it this way and go look at your business science 101 textbook and do it this way. I think because we work in a creative environment, there's a lot of creative solutions. And that would be something that motivates me. And I like to be around that. I like to be around people who they're not just giving you the answer, just it's stock, right? Because it's like the corporate way of doing things. There's a million ways to skin the cat. There's all sorts of creative solutions. And I think that's the part of being a promoter and being a part of this environment that's the best. So back to your point, the people that you get to lean on are actually, they're beyond having the great answers. It's sometimes the way they approach them and the variety of the ways that they approach them that it actually motivates you. You're in a different country and sometimes it doesn't seem so much like we're different countries. We're so close and so interactive and we speak the same language for the most part. Now you guys have two here, but for the most part, this side of the country pretty much just speaks English. So there are Canadian acts that come down to America that don't translate the same way they do here. Billy Talents and Arena Act here. Matthew Good can do multiples at all the ballrooms. They come over and they're club acts. Still great shows, but unfortunately they haven't broken the same way. Are there American acts that don't translate the same way over here that they translate in the States? that you guys have seen the opposite with and you don't have to name names. I'm not asking for you to call anybody out. I grew up as somebody who went to lots of dead shows and so I have an affinity and an affection for that. And so- Does Jam just not do as well up here? Right. For me growing up, Mo or any of those bands just never clicked here like the, at the time when they were clicking down there, right? Tick Toronto out, but 
I don't think the almonds ever got past an Orpheum and probably had 2,200 tickets, hmm. right? So you think maybe that was different on the east side of Canada? Like Toronto might have been bigger for them? No, I mean, I could go back and find those numbers, but it still was never as big, right? It just, just in was general never, across just the board. General, and, you know, again, go back. That's sort of going back 15 years. So now might be different and God rest those souls. But, you know, that's a bit of a historical take. I think then there's still a couple of genres now too where you can get certain Americana acts that have a massive following in a bunch of markets in America. And again, fantastic in my house. But sometimes the demand down there doesn't meet it up here. Best part is when you can have a conversation with a manager or an agent and they're okay with that. It's okay to say that, hey, it's not as big here. You know, let's go play 1,400 seats here and try to do the right thing. Maybe you're worth 4,500 tickets in pick another American town and means you're probably worth like 27,000 at Red Rocks. But when they take a stock approach that says, well, I'm worth 4,000 tickets, you're like, okay, well, eh, that genre, not so much. We joked a little bit a moment ago about there being two languages here. Is You have two official languages. I know it's more up east where French is a much bigger deal than it is on this side of the country. And I know of talking to Riley and some of the other guys in the Evanco office that they do a lot of programming for the French-speaking audience. Does that filter over to the West at all? No. I mean, those guys have a great business doing French-speaking artists. But this is pretty clearly just straight-up English for the most part? Yeah. If you're talking about the city in particular, big Asian population and big South Asian population. And so we do a handful of Asian shows, Chinese shows that come over, or K-pop shows, but there are still local promoters in that world and, and definitely same in the South Asian community. We haven't cracked that yet. But it's not like Montreal where sometimes an act will do a day of English shows and the next day they'll do a French show. Exactly. Like that where they can here. drive up and yeah, go do eight shows in a variety of cities in Quebec. That's singular to that part of the country. Yeah, I mean, that's Quebec City has a new arena, as you know. We do a lot of shows there now. And part of the, for us, is just adjusting to the fact that this is a French first city. And so, you know, we have a McCartney show there on all the marketing. It's all in French. And you know, I mean, you got to adapt. And That's got to be interesting, proofreading in two languages. Well, that's why you don't look to me. Yeah, I think definitely like the next love going to Quebec because it's, I mean, it feels like you're in Europe. Took our kids there last summer and went out to the Eastern townships and just outside of Montreal. And it's as beautiful place as you're going to find in Canada. So I think for the artists, it's just, it's an amazing part of the country to go to. That said too, you want to dig a little deeper. Those that go out to the Maritimes, same story comes back. Like, wow, right? You get out to Newfoundland, you get out to Halifax. If you're willing to dig, there's not as many venues and you got to dig a little harder, work a little harder to get out there. But everybody comes back and says, oh, my God, what a beautiful part of the country. Before I let you go, and I appreciate the time, there are so many kids coming up in the industry and you really have done so well achieving a really high office at Live Nation. How does somebody get into the business and then climb to achieve one of the bigger offices? You got to stick your nose in as many conversations as you can and try to soak up as much information from as many people as you can and then figure out how you're just going to springboard that and add value to the next opportunity. Sponge-like, just be there, take it all in. Again, in it back to a sort of the creative business, you're not working for IBM where there's like, oh, hey, you get in this elevator and it goes up to, you know, this floor in this silo. Right. You can jump across from you have to understand ticketing, you have to understand production, you have to understand marketing. You have to have the ability to have relationships with people that are going to last you for 20, 30, 40 years that you can go back to and say, remember when we did this? And Oh, yeah, that was great. And here we are three years later and we haven't done anything for three years. But it's like, oh, man, no, you added value to my career or my whatever it was back then. OK, let's go do this now. I mean, for me, it was like a curiosity for 
the business. If you hold a whole bunch of information and a whole bunch of learnings and a whole bunch of tactics and ways and means that people have taught you or you've seen and you can apply them in a constructive way, then you're going to make it. They don't just hand it to you because you got some degree or you got some, hey man, I was on this desk for two years and so where's this? It's like, okay, like what value have you brought here? What conversations have you added value to? What problems have you solved? So if you got that and you got some patience and you believe in the music and the power of live, in our case here, you believe in all that and you can add value to it, then you'll be in the game. But just to say you're here, there's enough people that are probably at the door. So absolutely still believe in that. I mean, just the power of being earnest and constructive. Awesome, man. Dude, thank you so much for making time and talking to me today. That was great, Dan. I'm proud to call Paul a friend. Clearly a mind at work. And hey, we promised you would bring this interview. It may have taken us three tries, but we had it. We delivered the great Paul Hagginson here in Promoter 101. We did it, y'all. We did it. Josh Javor, X-Ray Touring. I'm on Promoter 101. Tweets of the week. You love them. I love them. It's time for Dan's Tweets of the Week. Let's start here, Dan. When an act insists on going over budget on production until they learn they're in overage and is their money being spent? Wait, we don't really need a full sound system, do we? The singer can just really project loudly. I mean, it's our money, right? It's about the art, Luke. It's about the art. Oh, wait, it's our money? Fuck the art. It's about the money. Oh, wait, production buyouts are show costs? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> How about this? Everyone sees themselves as the hero in the story of their own life. Odds are someone sees you as the villain in their story, too. Luke, you must be the villain in a lot of people's stories, huh? You know what? In this life, very likely. And this one, Dan, when an artist does not allow you to spend money on marketing, then questions you why the shows weren't marketed heavier. Investing into yourself is just never a bad idea. It's not always true. That's like telling some people to be themselves. Just be yourself can be mean advice sometimes, I have to say. You've got a dazzling personality to everybody except, well, everybody, is, I guess. <laughs> Dan, this is my favorite one of the week. You got a lot of traction on socials on this. There should really be a limit on how long you can say the act is double platinum. Like if they haven't sold a thousand albums or even a thousand downloads worldwide in the past year, you lose that status. Yeah, I don't want to name drop here, but I will tell you that the band that sent out this email blast has two soul patches and one goatee. Who could it be? I will just say this, that I really am into this renewed double platinum status for AdMats. It's like an airline, you know, you have to fly 100,000 miles a year to get platinum exec on American and spend so much money with them. I think you should have to do the same for putting that on an AdMat. I mean, it's not like Creed could still play arenas. Like those guys went diamond, but not currently. Not presently, but they did sell a lot of records, right? And you're probably thinking of it from the perspective of a promoter who gets marketed from agents. Oh my God, we've got this Grammy-nominated, double-platinum-selling artist. Meanwhile, they were nominated for a Grammy in 1971 and sold their last record in 1984. Like, what does it really mean? That's, I think, where the real rub comes in, right, Dan? Well, it's just an interesting thing. It's like double platinum, but when? When was the last time you guys broke a single, let alone recorded one? I mean, come on, seriously. Yep. And that'll do it for some Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. Make sure you keep up with Dan on Twitter. He is at the Jew.
This is John Schultz. I'm Windish. Charlie from Crescent Ballroom. Craig Newman. Dave Brooks. Dave Ratner. John Holiday. Ted Bicknell. LX. Raymond Shaw. Kelly Lesko. Gerald B. Henley. Harlan Fry here. Jack Ross. Jason Miller. Jeffrey Fox. Joe Escalante. Fleur LeBlanc. Molly Atkins. Neil Dixon. Nick Farkas. Paula Palazzo. And I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101! We're joined for our next segment on Promoter 101 with a war story with author Larry Butler, focusing on Styx's Tommy Shaw. Hey, Steiny, it's Larry Butler reporting in once again from Nashville with a war story for you. This one I call Committing a Federal Offense with Tommy Shaw. I rarely start any day with the intention of committing a federal crime, but unusual circumstances force normal people into doing abnormal things to survive. And here we go. I was out on the first damn Yankees tour in the summer of 1990 doing artist tour promotions. You couldn't ask for a more entertaining bunch of guys to tour with Tommy Shaw, Jack Blades and Ted Nugent. All professionals, all hilarious. What a hoot. The unusual circumstances leading up to my total disregard of federal law were all about, of course, a radio interview. We were in Hartford, Connecticut, with Syracuse, New York, scheduled for the next night. One of the Syracuse stations wanted Tommy Shaw for their on-air guest in their studios the next day at noon, but there was no way for the band bus to get there in time. So Tommy and I were booked to fly from Hartford to Syracuse the next morning, just in time to make the broadcast. As it was then and probably is still to this day, there are not a whole lot of flights from Hartford to Syracuse. In fact, at that time, there was only one. And if we didn't make this flight, Tommy would not only miss the radio interview, he'd miss the show too. What could go wrong? Uh, A number of things, actually. First of all, they moved the airport. The only time I'd been in Hartford was maybe 10 years previous to that when the airport was pretty conveniently located outside of downtown. In the interim, the city fathers decided to build a new one, but much further out of town, and no one bothered to tell me about it. Of course, I didn't discover this until Tommy and I were trying to find the rental car return at the old airport. Some nearby gas station attendant pointed and waved his arms further south, denoting that this new airport was not nearby. However, we arrived at the new terminal with barely enough time to make the flight. The Hartford to Syracuse route was serviced by a prop jet puddle jumper, which was unfortunately, at the very last gate in this nice, brand spanking new, big, long terminal. But we made out of breath. We ran and arrived at the gate with a few minutes to spare, actually. Although looking around suspiciously, there were just the two of us. No other passengers, no airline personnel. I looked out onto the tarmac, however, and there was the plane about 100 feet from the door, The gate personnel were out there helping passengers climb up the small folding stairs into this little 20-passenger plane. These were desperate times for desperate measures, and we were desperate men. Tommy, I said, calmly, we're going out there. We're going to open this big red door. It's going to set off some big-ass alarm. We're going to walk quickly and resolutely to the plane. We're not going to run, and we're not going to look back. We're going to seem like we know where we're going and that we belong here. We will ignore the flashing lights and the sirens as if they must be intended for someone else. And we did just that. We got to the plane just as the last passenger boarded and the crew, and we were in our seats before the airport police showed up. Fortunately, the pilot and the crew were unaware of what we had done, and they just kind of shrugged their shoulders to the consternation of the cops. Tommy and I talked about it for the rest of the tour. 
It's Larry Butler reporting in from Nashville. Thanks, Tiny. When you think of sticks and you think of Larry Butler, you think of a magical time and he sets the stage so well. So thrilled to have Larry talking about Tommy Shaw on the podcast this week. What a great get. Hi, I'm Mitch Rose, co-head of the music department at CAA, and I'm on Promoter 101. On our final interview this week, we're joined by AEG Northwest's regional marketing director, Andy Rowe, here to talk about cutting his teeth in this business, how he went from managing the dam to overseeing marketing for Bumbershoot. Andy Rowe is in the house. Dude, welcome. Thanks for having me, buddy. We're all corporate rock sellouts these days. We'll take us back to a real level of some of those guys that I really look up to in the business. Andy Summers, Naylin, old school Rick Bondi, Sean Striegel, and Andy Rowe, man. You know, it's like the punk rock original mafia, you know? Well, those guys are bookers. I'm a marketer. But that said, you talk about Andy Summers, man, that's way back. I remember being, I must have been a teenager. I was 19 and I was managing a band called Mind Over Four at the time. First band I ever managed. And we were offered a show supporting Megadeth at this venue in Fresno, this beautiful old theater that was like falling apart. And it was a warm-up tour for their world tour on, with Judas Priest. And I remember this guy with a mullet and it was Andy Summers. And he was the one who gave us that shot. Nice. Yeah, it was cool days. I mean, actually, I think I'd stopped managing the band, but I went up for that show. Because you can drive that in like four hours, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was close with those guys. I mean, it was like my first taste of being involved in a team trying to promote something. It was totally DIY. We were flyering and postering over Golden Voice flyers in Orange County, California, and Long Beach. And it was kind of like, do what they do, just do it more aggressive. It was guerrilla stuff. And I was trying to get the word out about that band. But yeah, that's how I kind of started in this whole thing. Basically saw the guy with a shotgun behind the door, probably doing too much speed or coke. And he wasn't a good manager and they didn't like him. I figured if I do what he doesn't do and I do the opposite, maybe I can have some success with these guys. And we had a really good shot. Like if things went well with those guys, my career might be even better than it is now. So now you had some good success with management in that LA scene when it was really happening. And you got to work with a lot of those cool bands. I mean, my favorite being The Damned. Yeah, The Damned. That's a funny one because that was years later. The Damned were ironically the classic example of be careful what you wish for because it might come true. I remember being 14, 13 years old, uh, being my favorite band uh, with a couple of friends in Southern California. We would listen. We would hit Tower Records, hit those import racks. And I ended up getting the opportunity as an adult much later in life to manage them. And it was at a point where they were kind of reforming. Captain Sensible had come back, but they weren't organized. They didn't have a proper agent. They didn't have management. They're a band that had a history of many managers. They were deemed unmanageable. And somehow I fell into it and ended up getting them a record deal with Dexter Holland's Nitro Records, Brian Holland from The Offspring. He had Nitro Records in Huntington Beach and kind of gave him, uh, you know, a jumpstart for the career that has actually really, really is doing amazing. I mean, 40th anniversary tour. They just did finally got to do the Royal Albert Hall and sell it out uh, where they were not allowed to play there. They were uninvited from there in 77. And I believe they just had their first top 10 album in their history, which is kind of amazing. You're just talking about shit coming full circle. And I think that has for a lot of us. I mean, Sean, punk rock guy running a big part in New York Live Nation. You are running the mark 
marketing for AEG here. Serious big operation. You were talking about Jamie Loeb earlier, who, you know, part of that early warp tour scene in LA. You know, you look at some of those guys from Golden Voice that now are basically Southern California AEG office that have developed into the biggest festival in at least North America. But when you're talking about Coachella, possibly the biggest festival in the world by brand now. Absolutely. Some of those punk rock roots have really gone to some amazing places. And I would imagine even in, you know, the world of like No Doubt, where those guys have kind of conquered the world too. And that's all kind of sprung off of punk rock. I remember seeing No Doubt in ballrooms in hotels in Anaheim, California, when they were just a baby band, you know, back in the day. It's so funny. But yeah, I mean, you talk about Jamie Loeb, Striegel, people like that. I mean, going back to my first band, my number four, I, we did the original shows at Scream, which was a legendary underground club in LA. Jane's Addiction came out of Scream and had two venues actually in those days. And then from there, we did the Jane show at UC Santa Barbara. And Jamie, though I didn't know her at the time, I'm pretty sure she was involved with the student organization yeah, that she was put on their there, shows. Right? Yeah. yeah. And later on, we, we all know what she's doing now with Niederlander. Striegel met him through the damned. And I mean, that guy and I fell in love with each other. That guy's still one of my, you know, he's great. He's, right? he's a brother from another mother. I think a lot of those people and other people that we're not naming here, there's so many of them. I think a lot of the whole punk rock thing, the DIY thing that for either being a talent buyer, which is not me or a marketing director, I think it was learning how to do stuff without a budget. I didn't get an internship through a university to get a job in a label or, you know, work at a management company like a lot of people, you know, did then and do now. It was DIY. It was figuring it out and covering all bases with very little money. And it was funny, like joining the corporate concert industry, which thanks to Sean Striegel, he's the one who talked me into joining House of Blues in Southern California. Oh, really? Yeah. Like I was managing and also consulting for in the digital world long before there was social media and had accounts like was I doing like Fandango.com when they were a startup or a store at Adidas USA in Portland. I was working with some, it was during the dot-com gravy train days, you know, there's really good money to be had. People were burning through millions in a year and they wanted to spend it and we were happy to take it and try to promote with it, you know? But again, it was all DIY. It was kind of like guerrilla marketing using the newly formed and launched internet as we know today. But people like Striegel, Jamie, uh, what I was getting at is like having no budget and learning how to do things with very little. And then suddenly you're given a budget and HOB, you know, maybe it's two grand to show. But it's like, wait a minute, I have a budget. And then I got into the concert world without House of Blues concerts, the Gibson. It was like, wait a minute, I can buy radio and TV. And it was like a kid in a candy store. So you could take that sort of spirit that you have doing things with very little and do a lot more things still be very budget conscious, but be effective. So then eventually, you know, you need a machine. I mean, my first band, we had a word processing team, a husband and wife from Long Beach, California, and they were like inputting names off a handwritten mailing list into a word processing machine that spit out stickers. And we did our fan club mailing. And, you know, same with the merch stuff. It was the early days of merch.com, which Bill Fold actually started with a buddy of mine. Bill Fold. Yeah, Spike Xavier. Those two guys started merch.com. And before that, those were the original, like, like a guy named Carl, I think it was Carl Thompson. He was printing merchandise in his garage for Jane's Addiction, L7, The Adolescence, DI, Mind Over 4, all DIY. There's 
two skate kids and Carl printing all this merch, but all that sort of covering all bases. Like we knew that there was a machine there. And this is before action sports money came into the mix in the nineties, which was also part of the gravy train, a lot of revenue there to support bands. And it all sort of fit together later on. And then I think it culminated in 2001, maybe with the K rocks and Lynn invasion. I think it was blockbuster pavilion back then. It was like 52,000 people there for like legendary UK and American punk rock bands. Sex like, Pistols, like Pistols, Damned X, but not Oscar the real Ring. Pistols. Well, without Sid, yeah, right. of course. You of course. can't be the Pistols. The Pistols were Sid. I mean, come on. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean is I, it basically just PIL? I'm sorry, I'm a damn fan. It's like Beatles and Stones, you know. I was damned in Pistols. I was damned, <laughs> and and even the Clash too. I know the stories about those guys being a boy band now. So I, <laughs> I love the Clash, and I think they probably headlined Coachella if all the members were still alive, and I would be there for it. But hearing some of the stories from Sensible and Vania, and it's pretty funny to hear the old. Bernie Rhodes, Malcolm McLaren, shtick as two guys in London. When I started in the business, there were early moments of first Clash reunion tour. And it's there was stadium tour buzz of possibly Clash Green Day. And the industry was going nuts with that. Never came to be, but it sounded like it was really close. Could it you was imagine? like the success of Dookie and those moments of like, could punk rock play a stadium? And it's just like, how cool, you know? It's just like that moment seemed like it was there and it was possible. It would have been incredible. I mean, it's kind of funny, though, because we just did Flogging Molly, Dropkick Murphy's show, and Jake Burns is opening it. To me, it's like Jake Burns from Stiff Little Finger should be friggin' headlining, you know, but though I'm a huge Flogging Molly fan, and we did that show at WAMU, and it was sold out so quick. It was amazing. But that said, it's like the fan in me, I want to see the old school man headline. So I'm curious to know, would it would the clash have been over Green Day? I sure hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah they would I, have. Yeah. Well, and particularly at Dookie, if there was no question, but I, I would like to think knowing those Green Day guys a little bit that Billy would have insisted. Yeah. I can't speak for those guys, but I'm just, that has to be a given. It's funny, you know, because when I was working with The Damned, they those guys, they wanted to open for AFI, who were the, like the strongest band on the label. They were blowing up at the time. Would we have made fans from AFI fans? I don't know. The reason I ended up dropping the band and moving on was because they wanted to do a Rob Zombie tour. Actually, Banian did. And I was flat against it. I, th I said it's a disaster just because Rob Zombie has really cool taste in music and he wants you and handpicked you to be direct Doesn't support mean the fans will get on it. an amp theater tour the fans were like jerry springer fans it was the worst and we literally pulled them off the tour and sent them home two weeks into a full like 45 day tour ad matt's done it was andy gould from the firm i said andy apologies if you're listening but the band should have never been on it in the first place but talk about putting a legend with something more relevant and bigger at the time man it didn't work then well and i think that's a thing about the industry sometimes support acts wind up on bills because the headliner just has a taste for something that the audience may not yes something it gets forced into the mix that managers and agents can't talk everybody out because an artist offers another artist a cool gig that only the two of them enjoyed. I'll never forget the second or first night of the tour, Corpus Christi, Texas, Amphitheater, somebody threw a full roll of quarters and it hit Captain Sensible in the head while he's on stage. And I remember dealing with, was it Jerry Latouf? He passed away a few years ago. I don't know him, but I mean, that guy was trying to do everything to protect the band's safety at the next show. And he was like the GM of this amphitheater. And it was like, if you can't ensure their safety, they're not going to go on stage. And the bottom line is people hated them. Like people absolutely hated them. It was a complete disaster. The band, the artist being able to sell all the tickets, the direct support doesn't really equate to the equation in terms of needing to sell tickets. 
tickets. That's cool and everything for a headliner to pick his fine bottle of wine. But Jesus, like it can be a disaster. And, and that was the perfect storm. You go from management to the other side of the table as a marketing concert promotion firm. And you've been on this side of the table for a while. Why'd you switch? Honestly, I never wanted to switch. I was really happy. I mean, it was gravy train. I was making, you know, a lot more money doing it on my own than I was joining House of Blues clubs division at the time. But Striegel was persistent. And for two years after we met, he was a talent buyer in a festival that I was a partner with, with a couple of other people in Southern California that the dam were on. And Striegel told me during those days that he was having secret conversations to join House of Blues that they were opening a venue in Anaheim, California on Disney property. To me, it was just like, that was weird. <laughs> like, okay. And for two years he was there and he was really assertive. Like he called me like, when are you coming to work with me? I'm like, dude, I'm not going to come work with you. I'm doing good. You know, I got these clients and blah, blah, blah. Like, and I had my bands, I had baby bands. I had the luxury of having baby bands, bands that I knew that weren't going to sign record deals to sell records, but they were really cool live bands. I've always been about the live show and less about the live show with the production in an arena, but like how good can four to six people, men, women bring it on stage and just make fans go away with like, that was amazing. Like a memory, you know, like the shit I used to see as a kid. I don't know what changed. Oh, I had a, I was managing another band, amazing live band, Throw Rag. And we yeah, were, love Throw Rag. yeah, they were great. And I then they uh, supported on every Margie Albon tour back in the, like, I, end I of the can't night. count how many flogging Molly tours we did in the US and Europe too. And we did an amazing Queens of the Stone Age tour as well. But again, that was like, funny enough, a damned Rob Zombie tour. If Throw Rag did not fit with Queens fans, even though Queens loved them and there is a connection with the desert and all that. It's just, some things don't work out. But but yeah, Throw Rag were playing the House of Blues, Anaheim. I think Mud Honey was playing with us. And we... Well, that's a good match. Yeah, it was cool. I got cornered. Sean wanted to meet for dinner, like on a little patio there outside the venue. And I did. And out comes this like guy in sort of a corporate polo shirt and sits down, you know, with a belt tuck, shirt tucked in and a belt buckle, goatee. The guy named Jim, he's the general manager, introduces himself. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Are you guys trying to initiate me into a Jim. cult? Jim Biafore. He was the GM of Anaheim at the time. And I'm like, is this like cult indoctrination? You guys trying to like recruit me what's going on and sure enough it was like the hard sell like we really want you to come work here and they had an amazing marketer doing both venues uh, Angelie Raval who works at William Morris now one of my best friends and a real mentor in concert marketing for me to make that transition she was doing two venues but really you know so sun Sunset was her baby so they wanted somebody to do Anaheim Anaheim had become a beast and in fact it was the house of punk that's what home office used to call it and we used to do some crazy stuff there it was pretty awesome things that you you would be surprised to see it on Disney like property. The further south you went towards San Diego, where they had Soma, the more punk rock you got. You'd think it'd be LA, but LA was a little more glam rock. And then the further south you came down in the state, the more punk rock it got. Which is really ironic, right? Because I love the damn. They were British punk rock. I was born in England. I mean, that's why I sort of had those left wing leaning politics and my music it had. And all these other guys were like, you know, Reagan DeFuer or fucking Orange County kids right. that I was surrounded. I was like, how could you be a punk rock? In they were Newport against their rich Beach, parents. California. Yeah, it was so strange to me. So I joined House of Blues Anaheim. I got I got the hard sell to join House of Blues Anaheim. I talked to my wife about it. And I think what I really missed at the time was working with a team like people. I had myself and I had this unpaid intern named Kathy Mason who has gone on to do great things. Uh, now she's in charge of punk rock bowling, which ironically oh, in Vegas? is one of the few festivals that has actually grown. It's a mega festival now, you know, and in those days it was like... Youth brigades behind that 
to, right? Yeah, it's the Stern Brothers, yeah. you know, and funny enough, they were our label for Throw Rag. Like the glory days of action sports and music when there's all this cash being splashed around, punk rock was still confined to clubs and punk rock bowling was like House of Blues Vegas, main stage, big stage, and then smaller shows, 300 capacity rooms and everybody's bowling, you know? And now it's a big festival and it's kind of gone against the grain of what other festivals are doing. It's really strange. And the action sports money, it's not dried up, but it's just not there as much as it was. I, I digress. So I joined HOB Anaheim. I absolutely loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the operations people. I liked the fact that a band could tour. And maybe it was that perspective of seeing the damned or smaller baby bands touring small rooms and not having any consistency in the quality of the sound, the quality in their catering, the quality in their lights, the, the whole production, the artist experience. And HOB prided itself on two things, which was the artist experience from cradle to grave. And they had, you know, the whole lateral up and lateral down. You put a band from the clubs up higher into an amphitheater and you know, eventually they're going to come back down the ladder and they'll have a home. That was one part of it. But the other thing was, and this is what Striegel always said to me, man, he's like, we are not in the business of selling tickets. We're in the business of making memories. And that is something I tell my own team at the AG Northwest office. It's what I tell new hires. I tell interns. It's absolute truth. Because if you make a memory for the fans, you make a memory for the bands, they're going to come back. You make those agents and those managers happy. They want to come back to you. Years ago, I remember being at some conference where, you know, they said the average person goes to one show a year. And that's mind boggling, right? I used to like live at shows, you know, I bet my wife at a show. Who does that? Who would only go to one show a year? But that's most well, of the people. Well, they're talking about the average ticket buyer. You're talking about the guy that buys a ticket for Pearl Jam or Billy Joel at the garden or something. Yeah, exactly. But let's talk about how you wound up moving to Seattle? Well, I left the clubs. I was with the Gibson Amphitheater at the time working with Alex Hodges and Jamie Loeb. Larry Vallon was there and he moved over to AG and Bob Shea was still there. I think he's with Madison Square Gardens now. So I worked with that team. I'm um, Paola Palazzo. Who's at Live Nation Canada. Yeah, I love her. Do any of these guys could keep a job? Yeah, exactly. Right. The idea of working A for HOB was a big step for me. But then once the Live Nation acquisition was announced, I was like, whoa, that's like the arts and music publicly traded on the stock exchange. And I was naive, but I wasn't. I, I really always wanted to get back up to Washington. I used to live here for a little while in the 90s. I always wanted to get back up. I had a wife. We had a kid. And I didn't want to raise him in Southern California after my experience down there. I loved it up here. I always had a connection. I had family from England that moved to Victoria, B.C. So... When the Live Nation deal was announced, I just made a decision like my house was worth a ton of money. I'm just going to sell the thing. I'm going to move to Seattle without a job. And I just was public about it. And the next thing I know, like the next day I got a call, I think it was Larry Vallon or Derek Schaefer with AEG, maybe Eric Kohler. I'm not sure. But I do remember that literally five days after I made that decision, told Hodges, I'm not going to be around when the merger goes through. And he's like, hang on, you might get a stay on bonus. You know, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, you know, I don't really. You do I, it, Alex. Is, is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that, man. So I made the decision to cash in on the house that was worth more to me than the stay on bonus. And it was the right time to do it. And I did. I mean, I made a killing on this house and I was able to move to Seattle, buy a house like on a lake. You know, before that, though, literally four or five days later after making the decision that I'm not going to be around for the merger, I'm just going to wing it and go back to Seattle. I got offered a position about this, this AG venture in the Northwest that they were opening an office. And it was myself and a guy that I didn't know, but I'd heard about. I knew he used to run artists and audience, but 
that Alex. was Alex Cochin. Yeah. I met Coach. He came down from Seattle. And the next thing I know, literally two weeks after that, I'm starting at the AG office on September 1st, 2006. And it was Alex and I and an assistant. Mm-hmm. And we had the WAMU Theater. And I remember walking through the WAMU and it was the RV show. And I looked up at the, there was no venue. And I'm like, I really left the Gibson Amphitheater for this. What have I done? You must have really been thinking that when Van Morrison took stage in that opening. <laughs> yeah. And Hodges told me how much we paid for that at the time. And because he, he knew about it, you know, being on the House Blues side. But yeah, it was a challenge at first because it was, I believe it shouldn't have ever been called a theater. It should have been called an auditorium or a hall or a center. I got a couple other words that we could throw in there. Hey, you know what, though? You know, we did Daft Punk there. Golden Voice's first ever Northwest show. Oh, my God. What an amazing experience. Pyramid and all. For a rock venue, it is pretty friggin' amazing. Craftworks was Golden Voice's first ever before you guys were up here. When was that? Rick did it. Oh, Van Satin? Yeah. At the Paramount as a warm-up for Coachella. Well, that's in. What year was that? Uh, we're going to have to go back and look, but Toledo backed me up on this. Learn something new every day. And well, I anyways, know because I was their partner and I was still at Thrasher. Which, funny enough, Thrasher, I was going to tell you, talk about the old calendars. I remember the night I met you at South by Southwest. I was with Striegel and I think it was a throw egg showcase. I met you and your old partner, Mike, and... I was blown away. I was like, oh, I got to talk to these guys. You had the exact same calendar as us. You were the house of punk up here. (laughs) I want to tell you, I think what you've done with your career has always been just one of the coolest things ever because you just always kept it real. It's never been about ego. It's never been about look at the big bands I'm working with. It's like whether you're doing a baby band or you're doing a stadium show, it's always the same vibe of this is the job. This is the gig. Don't let the ego get in the way. We're not saving lives. We're just, you know, like I said, it's trying to make memories, man. And it's not rocket science, but it's fun. And when it's done right, it's really fun. And, and when the ego does get in the way of, with some people, it's frustrating. That's when I've questioned, like, do I really want to do this? You know, <laughs> like, or I want to say, hey, man, we're not saving lives here. And then the phone goes silent. So <laughs> the great Andy Rowe talking a little history with me on Promoter 101. Thanks, Dan. Andy is an industry legend that has been keeping his punk rock credibility since the early days of the biz for him. So thrilled to finally have him on the podcast. I'm Sarah Beasley from Wolf Trap, and I'm on Promoter 101. It's time for some birthdays this week, October 19th to 25th. On Friday, 1019, wishing a happy birthday to David Shapiro. Saturday, the 20th of October, Rich Schaefer and Jeff Cohen. On Sunday, the 21st, wishing a happy birthday to the queen of needle and marketing, Miss Jamie Loeb. Jamie Loeb! Jamie Loeb! Happy birthday. Monday, 1022, bus driver to the stars, Mr. Les Ingram, Adam Plon, Larry Frank, Karen Donovan, and Ellen Stewart. Tuesday, wishing a happy birthday out to Larry Rust, Lucas Fritz, and Amy Davidman. Wednesday, 1024th, Billy Tubb, Drew Wilburn, and Howie Schneed, the king of Club New York promotions. Yes, he is indeed. And Thursday, the 25th, wishing a happy birthday to WME's Doug Neff and Red Light's Enzo DiVincenzo. Hey, happy birthday to everybody. Well, from me and Luke, actually, and the entire gang here at the Promoter 101 World Headquarters. <laughs> Merry birthday, miss. Merry birthday. And a happy Jew year. This is Jason Flom. John Valentino. Jesse Lundy. Dan Smalls. Gino Shelton. David Simone. Ant Taylor. Natalia. Harvey fucking leads here. On Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. The quote of the week comes to us from Graham Nash. He was in a band called Crosby, Stills, Nash, and sometimes Young. Anyway, after six or seven performances of any song, you begin to perform it rather than feel it. Deep.
Very deep indeed, Dan, and that'll do it. Episode 105, Promoter 101, in the bag. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode. Really have to send a huge thanks out to our guest this week, Live Nation's Paul Hagginson, AEG Northwest, Sandy Rowe, and Larry Butler for coming on the show. We appreciate your time. Thanks, everybody, again for tuning in. Looking forward to seeing it next week on episode 106 of Promoter 101. And more importantly than listening next week is being with us in Philadelphia, This coming January 30th, it's going to be a humdinger. If you want to reach out to us or write us something, just email us at steiny at promoter101.net. You can find either me or Luke there. And remember, it's Big Block of Cheese Week. You can ask us any fucking thing you want. If you want time on the phone, if you want to hang out, maybe you want to go golfing with Luke. Totally possible. Unlikely, but, but possible. If you come to Nashville and I'm around, we will play golf for sure. We're done with episode 105. 106 is coming up next week. Have no fear of any headlines floating out there. We're going to be back with episode 106 next week. Dan assembled a panel of all-star marketing specialists, including Seattle Theater Groups, Jason Ross, Important Presents, Angela Smith, and back again for the second episode in a week, AEG Northwest, Andy Rowe back in the studio. These are three masters of their trade. Be sure to tune in for that. Plus, we're going to be joined by Live Nation Canada's Alice Viscasel, who's here to talk about booking Vancouver's legendary Commodore Ballroom. Look, you mentioned the headlines out there that the podcast might be going away. And I, I got to say, well, well Polestar has been very nice to us over the last couple of weeks with lots of press and the cover of the Town Fire Guide and all that stuff. They did write a very odd headline that me stepping back from the news was kind of taken out of context there. And definitely the podcast isn't going anywhere. We're enjoying it. We're having a ball. We know a lot of you are. And I know a lot of you like sent emails and called and we're worried about that. But have no fear. Me and Luke will be here annoying you while you're working out and flying and doing things that we don't really want to know. But but we're not going anywhere because we're having way too much phone completely distorting the topics of the industry for all of you to hear. For sure. For sure. For sure. Totally for sure. Not even. But hey, until then, we're wishing you sold out shows for the days and weeks to come. Cheers. This fall, coming to a conference near you. Two legends meet face to face. Activists Bernie Cahill, Emporium Presents, Dan Steinberg, Billboard Live. Bernie Cahill here. I'll be doing the keynote with Dan Steinberg at Billboard Live, Montage Beverly Hills, November 13th.